Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, friends, this morning we are uh, actually finishing up a sermon series in the book of Acts. Uh, we, uh, this, this series started way back uh, in, I remember, we, I think we started this series outside when we were in uh, kind of the height of uh, that COVID spike and we were under the tent. Uh, and now we are wrapping it up. We're finishing up Acts 28 today. We've seen uh, throughout the book of Acts uh, how Luke, the author, tells the story of the earliest Christian churches, right? This is his telling of the story of that, how the, the church went from a small band of followers of Jesus after his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, and then how they came to be uh, a religious movement that took over uh, and filled every corner of the known world at the time in the Roman Empire. And so we come at long last to Acts 28, Paul, uh, if you'll remember, throughout these past several chapters, has had one goal on his mind, which has been to get to Rome, to get to the capital of the empire, and to get the chance to speak before Caesar, to share the message of the good news, the message of the gospel, with the most powerful man in the world. And so, uh, our reading this morning will start in Acts chapter 28, verse 11, and we'll read uh, through verse uh, 30. If you're willing and able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? I'm sorry, we're going to start in verse 14. Trim off a little bit of that. Starting in verse, uh, the second part of verse 14. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of these Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you and what your views are, for with regard to this sect we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed the day uh, for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, 
You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. This is a cool scene in the book of Acts. Paul is on his way to Rome, finally getting to where he had longed to get for these past several years. And when he arrives at Rome, Rome is a a city that Paul had never visited yet. This wasn't uh, one of the cities that he had gone to on his missionary journeys. He had not planted the church in Rome, but we know that he knew about uh, the Christians in Rome, that somehow somebody else had gone and and shared the faith and started uh, a network of churches there. Before he arrives in Rome, he had already written a letter uh, to the churches in Rome, the the letter that's in our Bible as Romans. And so though they had never met, they knew of Paul and Paul knew of them. And so while he's being escorted into the city under guard, some of the Christians come out to meet him in this place called uh, Appia and then the Three Taverns. These are places that are respectfully... uh, 30 miles and 40 miles outside the city of Rome. So these people are excited. They're going out to greet Paul and then to come in with him so they can finally meet the apostle face to face. And so we come uh, to this final scene, Paul in Rome, in uh, the glittering capital of the world at the time, the seat of Roman power, the seat of Roman wealth, waiting in order to appeal to Caesar, in order to share his message with Caesar. We ought to think that we don't only come to the book of Acts in this chapter. We also come, remember we've said that that Acts is really the second half of a two-volume work by Luke. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, which we have in our Bible, and he wrote Acts to the same audience. So this is uh, Luke and its sequel, the book of Acts. And in it, Luke tells one story, the story of the king, Jesus, and the story of the kingdom growing and spreading through his church. For Luke, you can't tell the story of one without the other. The story of Jesus is tied up with the story of his church. The story of the king is tied up with the story of the kingdom. He gives us this unity that Jesus isn't just a historical figure who lived and died and rose again 2,000 years ago, that the story of Jesus continues to be worked out in the life of his church, in the life of, of famous missionaries and apostles like Paul, and in the lives of ordinary people, like these Roman Christians who are never identified, ordinary people like you and me. In the end of the chapter, the end of of Luke-Acts serves as an interesting bracket when we read it with the first half of Luke. Paul's preaching here is twice characterized as, as that he was preaching the kingdom of God. We're told twice that he's preaching the kingdom of God and the lordship of Jesus. 
convincing them that Jesus is Lord. Curios, it's the, uh, we tend to think of Lord as a narrowly religious term, but it wasn't particularly a religious term in those days. It simply meant the king, uh, the one in control. Earlier, Felix, the governor, had referred to Caesar as Lord. And it was a customary way to, to speak of Caesar, the most powerful king of the world, uh, as Lord. And yet here's Paul in prison at the end of the book of Acts, proclaiming not Caesar's kingdom, but Jesus's kingdom. And not that Caesar is Lord, but that Jesus is Lord. And yet he is under lock and key under Caesar in one of his prisons. The gospel of Luke begins in a flurry of angelic announcements, right? You remember the angels appear to Mary, they appear to Elizabeth and Zechariah, they appear to the shepherds in the heavens. That over and over again, heaven in the book of Luke begins telling earth what's going to happen, what's happening with the birth of Jesus. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary. And this is what he says. He says, he, that is the, the baby that you'll give birth to, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Right, so Luke begins with the announcement of the kingdom. This baby who's going to be born is the king. He's the son of David. He's the inheritance of Israel. He's going to rule over a kingdom that's not bounded geographically. It's going to encompass the entire world. And it's not bound by time. It's going to be an eternal kingdom. Right, that this kingdom is going to be the kingdom where God finally brings his rule into this broken world. And so it begins with an announcement of the kingdom with angelic fanfare and trumpets and miracle. And it ends with an announcement of the kingdom. Paul preaching the kingdom of God and that Jesus Christ is king. And yet, if we're honest, it hasn't gone the way that you would have thought it would go, right? If you went straight from Luke chapter 1 the announcement of the great king, the healing of the world, the kingdom of God, you wouldn't think they would end with an itinerant preacher under lock and key awaiting trial by Caesar announcing this kingdom, right? It doesn't look like any kingdom that you or I have ever seen, right? It doesn't look like a powerful announcement about the changing of the world. It doesn't look like everything is being transformed. It looks quite honestly like defeat, it looks like uh, the hopes that began with angel songs have ended up in defeat and loss and imprisonment. And yet it ends. Notice that ending. Paul continued to preach the kingdom of God with great boldness and without hindrance. To Paul, it doesn't look like defeat. To Paul, it looks like the kingdom going forward. It looks like the, the plan moving ahead of the announcement of the kingdom and the rule of the king. We see here that this kingdom, as Jesus said, is not like the kingdoms of this world. That his kingdom isn't like Caesar's kingdom. It's not like the empires of this world. It's not principally about power. It's not about what looks strong or mighty in the eyes of the world. That it's another kind of kingdom entirely. And so we're going to look this morning at this kingdom of God that Paul uh, announced, that Luke tells us was coming in Jesus. 
We're going to look at the rejection of the kingdom, the weakness of the kingdom, and then finally the power of the kingdom. First, the rejection of the kingdom. When Paul arrives uh, in Rome, even though his, his heart has been set on, an, on uh, announcing the gospel to Caesar and to the Romans, he doesn't start there. He starts with the Jewish community in Israel or in Rome. He starts by seeking out, as he has in city after city after city, the Jews of the city so that he could tell them that their Messiah had come. Notice what it says what he does that, uh, from Moses and the prophets. He explained to them essentially what Gabriel said, that this Jesus who came was David's son. He was the rightful heir of the throne of David. He was the hope of Abraham. He was the one that we've been waiting for. And instead of acceptance, as he has in city after city, when he preaches the gospel to Israel, Paul meets with rejection. Instead of embracing uh, their salvation, by and large, not completely, we're told that some believe, but many disbelieve. And yet Paul never stops going after them. Paul never stops. Remember, he was uh, a Jew who had converted uh, to Christianity. He had already, in the letter to the Romans, come to terms with the fact that what, what was happening felt like a large, uh, wide-scale uh, Israelite rejection of the Messiah. And yet, he never stops going to them. He never stops announcing this good news everywhere he goes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, as he says it. And in this, we see the posture of God, right? God never stopped pursuing his people. He never stops pursuing his people. He never stops preaching his grace. That he keeps going after his people, even though they reject him. And so he quotes, finally, this quotation from the prophet Isaiah, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You'll see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears, they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. This is a famous passage of Isaiah. It comes in Isaiah chapter six, where the prophet Isaiah has a vision of God where he's called by God and sent by God to be a prophet to his people in Judah. And yet, at the very same breath, as God calls him and sends him as a preacher, he says, go to this people because they're never going to see you, they're never going to hear you, they're never going to believe you. Your message is going to be one of preaching to people with deaf ears and blind eyes and hard hearts. He sends Isaiah as a prophet telling him, you go and preach as a prophet, but it's not going to work. You're going to be mocked. You're not going to be listened to. I'm sending you uh, as a sign. I'm sending you because I am a God who continually reaches out to my hard-hearted people. But they're never going to listen. They're not going to hear. They're not going to repent. They're not going to change. This is... Uh, you know, the, the sermon preached to my ordination is sounding better and better. This, was, this, was, uh, this would be a tough way to head into ministry. It'd be a tough way to head into a pastoral calling or a prophetic calling as Isaiah had and go, look, preach your best sermons, do your very best, knock yourself out, kid, but listen. It's not going to go well. They're not going to hear. They're not going to listen. And Isaiah's life proved that out. It had this pattern where he announced and he was rejected. He preached and they rejected him. 
over and over and over again. And yet he kept going because Isaiah found himself in what becomes a dilemma for the prophets, which is they preach the message and the message is rejected and they want it to be heard, so they preach it again and it gets rejected again. And every time that the people reject the message, their hearts get a little bit harder, right? This is uh, every, every parent knows some dynamic of this, right? You give the same rule once and you feel like, well, maybe I got a chance that they heard it. By the time you've said it three, four, five, six times, at some point, you know that your voice has just become white noise, right? That they're, it's, they're, no, they're not even really deciding anymore to ignore you when, they tell you to, when you tell them to clean their room. It's just like, oh yeah, there goes dad again with his crazy talk about cleaning my room. So something happens where the more you're exposed to a message, the more you hear it and reject it, the harder you become against it the more numb you become to even hearing it the first time. And that's what Isaiah lived through. And that's now what Paul is living through, where he says, look, I, I bring the message, I, I offer grace, I offer mercy. And they're blind and they're deaf and it's just getting worse. The resistance is just getting harder. There's a place in Hebrews uh, where quoting uh, from Exodus He quotes a psalm referring to Exodus where he says, today when you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts like you did in the wilderness. He said, look, there's a today, there's a moment where you hear God's voice, where you hear the gospel. When you hear his voice, don't harden your heart against it, but listen to him. Listen to the offer of grace. Listen to the love of God. Listen to the gospel. What have you done? What What have we done with the voice of God when it speaks to you? What have you done with the message of God's grace and the gospel? Every time you hear it, every time you hear the good news of a God who loves you and sent his son to die for you, who calls you to repentance and faith, I think we tend to think that that's a message that we can hear and do nothing with. Right? We can say, oh, well, I'll deal with that later. I'll evaluate that later. But in reality, every time you hear it either is going to be an occasion to soften your heart or to harden your heart. It's either a moment to open your ears and to hear and to receive God's grace as a gift. Or if you do nothing with it, you're not actually doing nothing with it. You're actually hardening yourself against it just a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more until one day you become entirely hardened to it. I remember having a a friend in college um, in sharing, uh, we, were, we had been at a church service together and he'd heard a really clear invitation to believe the gospel. And he actually said to me, you know what? I think I will believe that someday, but I don't want to become a Christian during college uh, because I don't want to miss out, right? Like, honestly, I'm having a lot of fun um, and I don't want to, I, I, I'm worried about what would happen. So I'm just going to kick the can down the road a little bit. I'm going to, I'm going to wait, I'm going to delay. And you go, you know what? A lot of it, we don't know how many days we have to delay, right? We don't don't know how many todays there will be. If we continue to harden our hearts to the offer of the gospel, uh, will there be an opportunity? And so the invitation that Paul makes is the invitation that Jesus makes again and again to repent, to receive him by faith, to let this be the day that you soften your heart and open your ears to receive his grace. 
Because for Paul, there's a new line that goes through humanity. Right up until this point, God's dealings with his people, there had been the Jews and the Gentiles. What mattered was whether you were circumcised or whether you were uncircumcised. What Paul says now is, look, no. Now the line through humanity is what you've done with Jesus. It's not whether you happen to be born Jewish or whether you happen to be born Gentile, Roman, or Greek. What matters now is what have you done with the kingdom? Have you heard the gospel, repented of your sins, trusted in Christ? Now that is, it's no longer, as he says in Galatians, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything anymore. What counts is faith expressing itself in love, belief in Christ. Paul no longer divides the people through Jew and Gentile. Notice at the end, it says that he, as he lived there at his own expense, verse 30, and welcomed all who came to him, Jew and Gentile alike, marked not by their birth, their ethnicity, their customs, but whether or not they belonged to Jesus, whether or not they had responded to the offer of the kingdom. So that was the rejection of the kingdom. Next, we see the weakness of the kingdom. It is with incredible irony that Paul is preaching the kingdom of God while a prisoner of the kingdom of Caesar. Right, that he is announcing uh, that there is a kingdom coming in the world that offers peace and security and life right under the nose of someone who was claiming that his kingdom brought peace and security and life everywhere that it went. But Paul's saying, no, look, what matters isn't Caesar's kingdom or any of the kingdoms of this world, but the hidden and small kingdom of Christ. God's kingdom grows right under Caesar's nose. It grows to the point that one day, you know, look, we read about the Roman Empire in our history books. We read about Caesar and all of the different Caesars in school. But the Roman Empire has long since faded uh, into history. And the church, the kingdom of God, has continued to grow stronger and stronger till it does fill the entire world. And it grew right under Caesar's power. And this is a theme that happens over and over again in the Bible, right? Think about uh, Moses drifting into Pharaoh's house as a baby in a basket to be received by his daughter and raised as an Egyptian to one day lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. Pharaoh's judgment and destruction grew right up under his nose. Or think about Herod when he heard that the king of the Jews had been born in Bethlehem and slaughtered all of the baby boys that had been born there, Jesus, the king, grew up right under his nose. The story is the one that Daniel tells in Daniel 2 where he has this vision of all of the great kingdoms of this world growing up like statues of bronze and gold and iron. And then a tiny little rock thrown at it topples the whole thing. That God's kingdom, the, the, the small and little way of God's kingdom ends up toppling the great kingdoms of this world. I think maybe this is something of what Mary sang about right after Gabriel announces uh, her pregnancy with Jesus. Uh, in Mary's song, in Luke chapter 1, Verse 46, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. 
For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and their thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. In the rich, he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Notice what he says. God, she says, God takes notice of the humble, the humble like her, the humble like his servants in Israel, and he throws away the rich, the powerful, the proud. And here we see that happening in Paul, the prisoner, preaching the kingdom under Caesar, that God is lifting up the humble, the weak and the foolish things of this world, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, in order to cast down the rich and the powerful and the proud. That this is the way that the kingdom goes and the way that the kingdom grows in small, weak, and humble ways. This is what Martin Luther uh, called the fundamental choice that Christians have to make between what he called a theology of the cross and a theology of glory. Right, a theology of the cross says that life with Christ is a life marked by repentance and humility and simplicity. In a life of glory, a theology of glory says that, no, no, the church is to be marked by wealth and power. Of course, for Luther, that landed particularly on what he observed in Rome, right? The Vatican uh, had built up for itself uh, immense power and wealth. It had become a church with an army and a treasury and ambassadors, right? It had become no longer a, a church marked by a theology of weakness and repentance and humility, but it become a gilded church of glory and power and might. And he said, look, when the church does that, when the church becomes, uh, becomes fixated on its own success, on its own wealth, on its own power, it actually ceases to be the church. It ceases to be the church of Jesus and the church of Paul that was marked not with glory and power, but with, with humility and service and witness and repentance. When we get this confused, all kinds of things get confused, right? This isn't a uniquely uh, Protestant Reformation versus Roman Catholic problem, right? This is a, a problem that has permutations in Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, all varieties of churches, right? That we can become so in love with success, with status, with power, that we actually miss out on the kingdom. We compromise our integrity, Right, one of the great tragedies, we, we, we ran out of time to pray for all the various tragedies that we've seen over the past couple of weeks. But it, you may have seen the report uh, that came out of the Southern Baptist Convention about abuse over the past dec you know, decades within their own ranks. And this is, again, this is not a Southern Baptist problem. This is a, a church-at-large problem. But one of the things that stood out, if you read the report, was the number of times that people chose the institutional power and reputation and standing over the victims who'd been hurt, right? There was the idea that there was just too much to lose to tell the truth. We've achieved so much. We're such a large denomination, such a, a you know, look, we're bearing so much fruit for the kingdom. We can't give honest repentance to what's gone on in our churches. 
And again, this is not, this, this could be any church in America, any church around the world. When we care more about what we've achieved and how we look than we do about responding to the hurting with grace, to our own sin with repentance, we lose the integrity that makes the church the church, that adopts the posture of the cross, that says, you know what? Yeah, there, we are as bad as it looks. We are as bad as Jesus says we are. When he says, repent, you're a sinner, to find grace. And so when we lose out on the weakness of the kingdom, we lose our integrity. We also lose something of our hope, don't we? Right? If, if, if we think that, that the hope of the kingdom is tied up with the power and success of the church, what do we do when the church doesn't look powerful and successful? What do we do when, it, when all of a sudden, uh, living in a, in a culture where Protestant Christianity had been kind of doing this through most of our history, kind of growing and thriving and having uh, some real influence? What do we do when all of a sudden we start to experience it going the other direction? We'll, go, we'll give in to despair, right? We'll say we're losing influence, we're losing power, we're losing numbers. But Jesus says, no, no, look, the kingdom is not all tied up in power, in numbers, and how it looks from the outside. The kingdom is growing and the kingdom will grow. The kingdom, uh, its power is not in the power and wealth and might of the church, but in the power of the gospel, the power of our announcement, the power of our king. And finally, we end with this on the power of God's kingdom. Acts has a strange ending. Look, Paul's been, we said for chapters now, he's been, I got to get to Caesar. I got to get to Caesar. I got to get to Caesar. And then it ends before he gets to Caesar. It ends with him in jail for two years under house arrest, chained to a guard, receiving anyone who comes to him with hospitality and proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. This is, this is very on brand for Paul. Remember Paul who'd suffered shipwrecks and beatings and stonings? He in prison says that he's preaching the gospel without hindrance. To us, it, this, I don't know about you, this looks like hindrance. This looks like some hindrance to me. If somebody said, Dave, you can still preach, but you're going to be chained to somebody and you're going to be in prison and, uh, and we're not going to be able to go anywhere... I'd say, I feel hindered. That, feel, that feels constraining to me. But Paul did not feel hindered in any way from doing what he was called to do, which was to preach and to teach and to announce the kingdom of God. He's saying that there's nothing that can happen on the outside that can restrain the kingdom of God. There's nothing that can be put on me. There's nothing that can be restricted. You can lock me in prison, but you can't put the kingdom in prison. You can put the preacher in, in, in prison, but you can't put the gospel in prison, that it's going to go forward as a powerful word, offering life and salvation and grace and hope to all, that it cannot be constrained. Why does Luke end the book of Acts here? It's a question that I think we've all wondered. If you read the commentaries, most of them don't really have too much of a great answer. Uh, some think that he literally just wanted to get it out. It was like, uh, I'd really love to end with Paul before Caesar, but he's still in prison and I got a deadline with the publisher or something. I need to get this, I need to get this book out. So he left it with him in there for two years. 
Some think that he had just kind of reached the end of the scroll, right? Like in those days, it was, you know, you wrote on a scroll and he got to the end and said, oh man, I got I to gotta tie this up. I think, uh, as pragmatic as those answers are, I think Paul ends the way that he does because the story that he's telling is not Paul's story. Right, look, the, the story he's telling began with Jesus. Remember, then it had Peter and the sermon at Pentecost, and then it had Stephen uh, preaching in the midst of his martyrdom, and it had Peter and Cornelius and his vision. And then about chapter nine, it picks up with Paul. And it's been following Paul pretty heavily, but there's other people involved. There's Luke and there's Timothy and there's these other guys. I think Paul ends it the way that he does in order to say, or sorry, I think Luke ends it the way that he does to say, look, this has never been just Paul's story. And it's never been just Peter's story. This is the story of Jesus and the story of his church. And that story is an ongoing story. It's a story that doesn't end at the end of Acts chapter 28. It's a story that continues going in Paul's life. We think Paul lives for another two or three years uh, after he gets out of Roman prison, uh, eventually to be executed in Rome. But the story doesn't stop there, right? There's still a church that's going forward. There's still missionaries going out that the story of the gospel, the story of the church, the story of Jesus isn't bound by any one or two people. It's not bound no matter how great the heroes of the faith are, right? The story of the gospel isn't just the story of Paul and Augustine and Billy Graham and these famous Christians. It's the story of ordinary folks, preaching and announcing and living the gospel with boldness and without hindrance, no matter what the world around us looks like. Because the power of the kingdom, it doesn't rest with any of us. Paul could be without hindrance because he knew that the, 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 the hope was in the promises that God had made. That God's promises weren't uh, just about him, but they were about his kingdom. God had already promised Eve that her seed would triumph and stomp on the head of the seed of the serpent. He had promised, and Paul knew that it would come to pass. God had already promised Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the heavens, that one day through his blessing, the entire world was going to be blessed through one of his children. And Paul knew that God was going to keep that promise. God had promised David that there would always be a king on his throne, that one of his descendants would one day rule a kingdom that stretched to the ends of the world and throughout eternity. And Paul knew that God would keep that promise. God had promised to the exiles in Babylon that he would send good news to them that their God reigns and that he would bring them back to himself to dwell with him in Jerusalem that he would give them a new covenant, that they would be his people and he would be their God. And because God had made these promises, Paul knew that the gospel of those promises was not hindered by Caesar. It wasn't hindered by the rejection of the Jewish community. And brothers and sisters, that kingdom is not hindered in our lives, in our city, in our day and age. There is no reason for us to despair or to lose hope, as hard as this life can be. Because the hardness of this life does not negate the promises of God. The brokenness of this world doesn't negate the promise of God's kingdom, that all things will be made new and set right in Jesus. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, it's been um, so wonderful just being listening in and being shaped by the story of the Acts, the incredible works that you did through your early church, to see the courage and the boldness of Paul, to see the, the stubbornness and anger of Peter turned and redeemed, to see a kingdom being built Uh, through a new reconciled Jew and Gentile church, to see the faith of the martyrs, to see the power of the spirit, to see the kingdom go forward. Lord, we long to see that in our day. We long to see our lives matter in the advancement of your kingdom and the growth and health of your church. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to proclaim your kingdom in word and in deed with great boldness, and without hindrance. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.